We're going to be in Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, as we're continuing to move through the book of Acts, dealing with the subject matter, conversational Christianity. And like I told you at the beginning of this thing, what I really wanted to do is just make some practical applications to what is happening in uh, the, the Bible with regards to conversations that they had. Yesterday on social media, I posted something about one of my most favorite things to do. I, I don't know how much history to give you here, but Cindy and I uh, took uh, her dad on a little trip uh, this past week to see the leaves. So we went up towards Cherokee Village to see the leaves, you know, and all that kind of thing. And while we were traveling, we decided we'd stop in at a restaurant and get something to get us a hamburger. And at this particular restaurant, it had a sign on the wall that captured my attention. It simply said something like, smile, it makes people curious or something. I can't remember exactly the quote, but uh, uh, I, I saw that and I thought that, that's really good because I, I use that technique a lot. Uh, if you will be walking through Walmart or wherever it may be, and if you smile at somebody, especially if you hold that smile, and maybe hold their glance uh, a little longer than normal because we, we tend to be a culture that glances down. We don't want to interact that way. But if you smile at somebody, they're likely to smile back at you. And then, of course, I've told you about my T-shirt that has Jesus on it. If you put those two things together, it, it becomes pretty effective to have a conversation with someone about, uh, about the Lord. I can't tell you the number of times that I've been able to do that just simply because of a smile, because of the message on the shirt, whatever it may be. Well, as you come back now to this theme, conversational Christianity, I'm absolutely convinced that we in the restoration movement have made things too fancy, too complicated. We, we've just gotten so wrapped up in techniques and things of that nature that we have at times forgotten the simplicity of what Jesus has assigned us to do. Just to go and talk about him. Tell your best friend about him. The people you meet on the road. It seems like if he's really your close companion in life, that somewhere along the line that conversation is going to be had where you talk about your best friend Jesus. And I think that we have somehow, we, we have, I don't know how, I don't want to be too critical here, but you know, there's a, there is a tendency in America today to have this high church mode where you, you've got to have a fancy building, you've got to have a fancy pastor or a preacher or whatever it may be. You've got to have this, you've got to have gold-plated service trays for the communion, you know, you, and you have to have the techniques. And you've got to have a certain order of worship. And, and we, we just go through this rigmarole that sometimes I think reduces the natural expression of Christianity to a list or a schedule of things that we've got to accomplish when we're together, when whatever. And I think that the natural nature of Christianity has been lost oftentimes in our rejection of the real restoration process. If you go back and study the book of Acts, they were a simple people. I mean, it's pretty clear if you study the book of Acts. There's never once in all the New Testament is there ever one time, not one time, does it ever even allude to them wanting to own a building. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing if you use your buildings effectively, but Scripture's pretty obvious that they were at least 15 examples in the New Testament of them meeting in their homes. Very simplistic kind of a thing. They would meet on the seashore. Uh, they, they would be people who meet in the later on in churches and meet in the catacombs. It wasn't the location as much as it was the condition of the heart. They wanted to be people who were very simple, understanding that the only real reason for us to come together is to make sure that we glorify Jesus in our presence. 
But sometimes when we go through our, our rigmaroles, our, our, our schedules, I think we lose a lot of that real intimacy with the Lord. Now, let's bring that back now to our conversation with regards to conversational Christianity. The same thing is true about having a conversation about Jesus. I've even done workshops. I've done seminars on how you can go about having certain things in place so that you can say the right things and memorize the right things so that you can have a a spiel that you give with regards to your Christianity. And only to find later in my ministry that I I feel like that sometimes instead of helping, I I may have actually hurt the, the conversational process. If it's not natural to you, for you to speak to another about your best friend Jesus, then there's a problem, not with that other person, or even with your conversation, there's a problem with your relationship with Jesus. And when you step through the book of Acts, it becomes radically clear that they first and foremost had a relationship with the Savior. And that relationship then just oozed out of them. They, I mean, they couldn't help but to talk about it with everybody and anybody. Well, in chapter 13, we're going to meet up with a son of Jesus. His name's Bar-Jesus. Now, he's not the son of our Jesus, but his name is Bar-Jesus, and uh, he's not a good guy. And there's going to be a brief conversation. It's not long, but there's going to be a brief conversation that Paul's going to have with this guy. And as the conversation takes place, it's going to lead to our key word for today is confrontational. There are times when conversation has to lead to a confrontation. It just has to. Because of the con- the context, the setting, the situation, etc. And in today's lesson, you're going to see that Paul didn't have a choice. If the message of Jesus was to be heard, he had to confront this false individual. This magician, this individual who's leading people down the wrong path. And so if you've got your Bibles, I'd like to read verses 4 through 12, and you'll have the entirety of the story, basically, with regards to Barnabas and Saul, who's Saul at this point, but becomes Paul, and and Paul's um, confrontation with this guy, uh, Bar-Jesus. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, verse 4, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Pause for just a second. That's quite a mouthful if you you look at this. This is a magician who's a Jew and a false prophet who bears number four, the name of Jesus. Jesus which would have probably been somewhat of a common name at the time, but when you associate it with our Lord, you begin to see this guy's really messed up. And so here's a a magician, a Jew, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, verse 7. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Notice his motives here. He wants to turn them away from the faith. Verse 9, but but Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, he looked intently at him and he said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? 
And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I want you to, I won't be able to deal with this in any length, but I want you to notice how that, that reading ends. Notice what leads the proconsul to a faith. He's astonished at what he had seen. That, of course, is the miraculous uh, uh, condition where uh, Paul actually pronounced blindness upon this guy. You and I can't do that. So that's not something you and I can apply to our conversations. But I want you to notice that that's not really the way the text ends. He comes to a system, of, he comes to a position of belief because he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The miracle only capitalized on the teaching of the Lord. The real power here is not in the miracle, the power is in the teaching of the Lord. And so just because you cannot pronounce blindness upon a false teacher, it doesn't mean that you don't have the power then in the teaching of the Lord to convince individuals of the saving nature of Jesus. I might also point out real quickly before we go back and get our three points that it's interesting that this is one of the few times in Scripture where the power of the Holy Spirit is used in an offensive way. Often we, we see the, the power of the Holy Spirit used in a, in a way to heal someone or to allow them to present the truth in a more effective manner, speaking in tongues, that kind of thing. But in this particular case, it's actually going to be used as a curse upon an individual. He's going to be blinded because he is doing three things that I don't want to point out to you next. All three of these things still exist in our world today. These are things that need to be confronted. Paul felt like it needed to be confronted because they are things that get in the way of somebody who sincerely is seeking the truth. When you find yourself in a position conversationally with someone who has obviously a desire to know the straight path, to know what God wants of their life, and yet somebody continues to interrupt, someone continues to distract them from the path, it's time for confrontation. Three things that I find rather obvious, and they all come from verse 10. But I find these to be very, very interesting and obvious about what Paul was willing to do with this false teacher. Go back to verse 10 and see these with me. It says that Paul said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Number one, I think we need to recognize that what Paul was saying here was not intended to be complimentary. This was not a warm fuzzy. This was not a keep the peace. This was not a, I don't want to rock the boat, so I'm not going to bring it up. Paul just says it, you son of the devil. It sounds like something that you would hear in a, you know, in a workplace or something that somebody would say when they hit their, hand, their finger with a hammer or something of that nature, or somebody that they, that they don't like, you son of the devil. And yet in this setting, this is God's man speaking, read the text, through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a man who is speaking the message of God and he is calling out an individual who we'll see in the next two points who has become a distraction to the conversation. There will be moments in your own conversational, conversational processes that you're going to have to call people out. Now, I pray that that doesn't come often because it can be so awkward and it can be such a, a game changer. And I have found in my own situation that sometimes when you speak out in that setting, you not only lose the one who is causing a distraction, but sometimes you actually lose the other person in the, in, as well. 
Because we, we've grown up in a culture where instead of really speaking the truth, we try to sugarcoat it or completely avoid it altogether. There was a time, many of you remember it, when back porch conversations that were had, they could become rather brutal. They were blunt. Or maybe let's take it to the more positive side. I suspect some of you in the room have made deals with individuals in the community that was never written down. No one signed a single paper. It was just a handshake, and we knew that that handshake was good because we were willing to put our character on the line when we said something. But my friends, I, I feel that that time is, is long gone in America today. Now, I'm not saying that we should go around picking fights, although there were times that Jesus did exactly that because he knew it was best for the message, and I will do, we'll deal with that later on in our series. But I am saying that we need to be people who recognize that there are individuals in our world who need to be exposed. And when you find somebody such as this magician, who's a Jew, who's a false prophet, who bears the name of Jesus, this is a guy who needs to be exposed. There are people in our contexts, religious individuals, who have put themselves forward as being the authority. Individuals who put themselves forward as being the pastor of the community or the, uh, the region or whatever it may be. And they, they put themselves forth in this kind of a, of a glowing manner, and yet they are not representing the true will of God. They need to be called out. They need to be exposed. There will be countless people in hell, I am convinced, because they chose to follow a man rather than the message of God. And the reason they chose to follow a man is because we've got people today, yet in our world who exist, who are just like this bar Jesus. Who are more, they, they are more interested in gathering a flock or a gathering to themselves than they are actually representing the message of Christ. They would rather make sure that the words of the Pope are spoken than the words of Jesus. They would rather quote Luther or Calvin or Spurgeon, or name whoever you want, than they would to quote Jesus. And because of that, these individuals are leading many astray. Because we often put so much faith in the pulpit. The guy who stands there clearly knows more than I do, and so he's got to be speaking the truth. And there are countless millions this morning who are sitting in pews like you're sitting, who are just taking the word of the pastor, taking the word of the preacher as if it's got to be true. He's the guy who went to Bible college. He's got to know. They'll never investigate for themselves. They'll just accept what has been said. And because they are lazy and place their faith in somebody who's willing to mislead them, both will one day burn forever in hell. Unless we are like Paul, who exposes such false teachers. You son of the devil, he says. Number two. It's not just that we've got to expose those who are representing anti-God concepts, but we have got to expose those who are full of deceit. As you continue to read there in verse 10, he says that you're the enemy of righteousness, you're full of all deceit and villainy. Now, obviously you know what the word deceit means. As I debate individuals online with regards to whatever, Catholicism, Calvinism, denominationalism, whatever it may be. One of the things that I have noticed is that so often when an individual gets cornered by the Holy Spirit, 
When, a word, when the words of God have pushed them into a place where they've got to make a change to their, their value system, that they will do one of two things. They will either start making accusations against me, who's trying to deliver the message of God, or they'll just flat out lie about their own positions. This is an individual who's full of deceit, this Bar-Jesus guy. He's willing to lie in order to keep from being convicted by the Holy Spirit. Now let's stop talking about other people for a moment. Let's stop talk, start talking about ourselves. We do the same thing, do we not? But I, wasn't, I didn't grow up believing that. How many times have we said that? And because I didn't grow up believing that, whatever you're suggesting can't be true because I didn't grow up believing that. You're lying to yourself. But my mom, my dad, they believed, therefore... I've got to believe that too. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to the Jesus who you at one point said would be your Lord. Not your mom, not your dad, not your grandma. Jesus will be your Lord. We've got to be careful that we don't lie to ourselves. And in the process, lie to the world around about us. This is a man who is full of deceit. And many of those that you will engage in conversations, especially those who are trying to distract from the pure gospel, they're going to be deceitful. They're going to be liars. And according to the example that we have before us here, Paul, he exposed them. He called them out. And then number three, he goes on to say after calling him deceitful and villain, he says, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? This is one of those more subtle areas that Paul addresses. And yet it's something that I think that you and I need to not only see, but be willing to go here as well. There are individuals, I, I am absolutely convinced, I, I've talked with them, there are individuals in the world of religious authority who use as their primary technique for keeping you, keeping you faithful to their values, their primary technique is just to complicate the message. You've probably had individuals stand in this pulpit, I don't know, and maybe I have done this, and if I have, forgive me. But individuals who, you know, they wanted to go into some deep discussion of the Greek language, of the Hebrew text. And they wanted to go off into all kinds of flowery definitions and big, you know, five-syllable words. And, and talk as if they are somehow, you know, more conditioned for religious discussion than you are because they know. And in the process, instead of actually giving you the truth, they are manipulating you. To come to their truth. And the way they do that is they just make everything sound so complicated. Which kind of leads me back to my introduction. I really fear that we in the church today have complicated things so much that there are actually folks in the world. I know there are because I talk to them regularly. I just couldn't be like that. I couldn't do what you guys do. I've had folks who I've brought to church because I thought that was my evangelistic need is to make him come sit in a pew beside me so that they could hear what the preacher had to say, which is, again, one of the most distracting things that I think we can do for folks. Not that we shouldn't bring him to church with us, but this should not be our evangelistic moment. This is our moment for them to see what God's people do. Out there's our evangelistic moment. But I've had people who sat beside me in the pew, they didn't have a clue what communion was even about. In spite of what we say and we pray before and all those kind of things, and they didn't have a clue what was going on. And you know Why? Because the communion wasn't for them. The communion's for us. They're not in communion with God. 
If they were in communion with God, they would understand what the communion's about because the communion service comes about as an expression of my relationship with Jesus, my Savior. But in the process of some of our complications, we actually have, I think, we've actually defeated the message. Now, I'm not really speaking of us here because as I look around, all of us, I think, know exactly what's going on with this. But there can be other situations out there where we begin to quote passages to people and they don't even know how to find the book of Genesis. And we've complicated things rather than led them to the simplicity of the truth. Now back to the point of this Bar Jesus guy. Notice what Paul says about him. You're making crooked the straight paths. There's two things that are interesting to see here. Number one, notice that he initially or originally, the path is straight. It's simple. It's not complicated. But Bar Jesus comes along and he makes it crooked. Now, you have to read the previous context, which we already did, but the reason he's making it crooked is because he can see that Paul and Barnabas are making headway with this proconsul. He don't want that to happen. I want the proconsul to be under my thumb. I want him to believe in my magic skills. I don't want him to go off and, and put his faith in this Jesus. And so here's what we'll do. We will make the path crooked. It doesn't give us an explanation as to how he did that, but maybe he challenged Paul on this issue or challenged him on that issue. And instead of really staying with what mattered, a faith in Jesus, the, 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 the false prophet bar Jesus is trying to get him to look at this and, and look at that and look at the other. And I, had, I can't tell you the number of times I've seen this in conversations as well with people. Individuals who, when they, they come close to a moment of conviction, change the subject. Because it's uncomfortable. So, so you're saying that I need to change my position. You're saying that I've been wrong all these years. You're saying that there's a truth that I didn't know. I, I don't want to go there. I don't want to approach that. Because that, that's uncomfortable for me. And so they change the subject. They do whatever they can to distract. It's not only deceiving to the conversation, it's deceiving to their own heart. But that's what Bar Jesus evidently was doing. Here's a man who wants to do anything but allow the proconsul to see the straight, the narrow, the path to Jesus. I don't want him to see that. And so let's make it crooked. Let's complicate the issues. And Paul calls him on it. To the extent that he's going to blind him for a season. Again, something you and I cannot do. But we can do this. We can present the truth in such a convicting manner in our conversations that whether or not they respond in our presence, they will respond. They'll give a yea or a nay. Many of them, most of them, according to the words of Jesus, few there be that find it, most of them will turn and walk away. But there will be some, if we do our job, there will be some who will be drawn to what needs to be said or, or heard or applied within their life. I want to use one last passage as I end this. It's one of my favorite passages in all the Old Testament. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 6, you come on down here to verse 16 and you find these words. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. 
and find rest for your souls. The ancient paths. I've preached a series of lessons on that in the past. Look for the ancient paths. I think there's a reason that they're called ancient. God is one at one point called the ancient of days. Ancient tends to ancient tends to imply something that has lasted. Paths that last are paths that uh, have endured. There have been folks who come along saying, you know, maybe we ought to make the path over here. But it never got made over there because this path endures. That trip that I told you that Cindy and I and her dad took the other day, as we were going up through the mountains, we noticed a path that ran alongside a river. And it was windy, i got to admit, up and down and around. But you know, that path has been there all the years I've ever known it. I've traveled it many days. It lasts. It's not one of these new fangdangled highways that cuts its way through this and cuts its way through that. It's just a path that's always been there. And it probably was a horse path back in the day that eventually became a road that became etc. They're paths that last. Now, let me make this application. Remember the bar Jesus that we just got done talking about wants to make those paths crooked. Specifically, what he wants to do is he wants to complicate the path. But God says that we need to be individuals who look for the ancient paths. Paths that have been carved out of the, the trail the, or the, the woods or whatever it may be because that's really the most advantageous way to go, this path right here. But as you end my passage in verse 16, it, 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 it says this, the last sentence, it's kind of tragic, he says to look for the ancient paths and you can find rest for your soul. But then it says, but they said, we will not walk in it. That is the culture of our day. Both culturally speaking, as far as our physical secular realm and spiritually speaking. The path to Jesus is really quite simple. It's something that every person can understand and every person can do. Come to him. Accept him as your Lord. That means master. Accept him as your savior. That means you'll die with him. Be buried in water. To rise and walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 3 and 4. And then progress through life with him. As he continues to work with you. Change your values, etc. It's not a hard process at all. And yet we have written manuals, we've developed workshops, seminars on how to go about it. Just talk to your friends. Just have a conversation. Help them examine their own value system to see whether or not they truly are serving Jesus as number one in their life. And when they discover that they're not, show them the simplicity of starting over by accepting Jesus as their Savior in baptism, confessing him as their Lord, coming and being a part of his fellowship. It's not that complicated. And our conversations need to reflect it. So much so that when we encounter a bar Jesus, we call him out. We're confrontational if necessary.